I think the phrase was, you know, I've thrown everything at it, but the kitchen sink. And I said, well, I don't think they want your kitchen sink. <laughs> Have you actually taken the time to really listen to what they want? Because I can guarantee you, it's not money. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi o te ata nei. Kua time mai a Rachel rawa ko Jamie ki te kōro me te kaupapa o te rā nei. Ko te haumi Māori. Ko Dylan Lawrence tēnei, he uru no Ngāti Ranginui tu haurangi Ngāti Raukawa ki te tonga e mihi ana ki a koutou katoa. Kia ora. I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of the Investment Team at Te Taurapa Tūhono New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're going to call it all Māori Investment. I'm with Rachel Tolalei, no Ngāti Raukaua ki te tonga, Ngāti Rārua. Rachel is the co-founder of Oho Cultural Design Agency, current chair of Māori-owned Moana New Zealand, former CEO of world-leading Māori family-owned food and beverage business, Kono, and founder of sustainable seafood company, Yellow Brick Road, which was sold to Kono in 2015. Rachel also acts as an advisor to venture capital fund, Movac. Also with me today is Jamie Tuta, Huri no Taranaki Maunga. Jamie is a very experienced iwi leader, investor, and director. He's the current chair of Tourism New Zealand, Māori Television, Venture Taranaki, and in addition, he's got a number of board roles of iwi commercial parent and investee boards. Jamie also became the youngest ever Māori trustee in 2011 at age 34, and he's a huge advocate for Māori economic development and investment. In addition to both of these people wearing mini portai, Jamie and Rachel have also been recipients of the Peter Blake Leadership Award. Feeling very honoured here this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Tēnā koe, Rachel. Tēnā koe, Jamie. Morena, Dylan. Tēnā koe, Dylan. Tēnā tātou. I just want to start by saying there's so much great stuff we can talk about when it comes to Māori investment. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'd love to focus on the 101. There's so much growth and ambition right now in Māori and across Aotearoa. But I really want to lift the lid on what Māori investment's all about Where's the putia or the money coming from that Māori are investing? What is it that Māori are looking for in an investment opportunity? Can non-Māori businesses access this type of funding? If so, what's the best way to approach? And finally, what does it mean to take on Māori as an investor? So a lot to get through, but first up, could we give the listeners a bit of an overview of what's brought you both to where you are today? And Jamie, I'll start with you. You grew up in Urunui coast of Taranaki, raised by your grandparents and surrounded by whānau. How would you say Papa has shaped your career today? Papa's been everything, Dylan. So, as you say, fortunate to be raised by my grandparents and really first-hand understanding service and being heavily involved in our local marae and iwi community in Urunui. And so, from a young age, being connected to our wider whānau and then being involved in cultural activities and responsibilities relating to our marae and our iwi. And so that really set in place for me my own path in terms of that ongoing contribution that was demonstrated by my grandparents and really led me to the place I am today in terms of being involved in pre- and post-settlement activities of our iwi in Taranaki. 
Rachel, you were CEO of world-leading Māori family-owned food and beverage business, Kōnō, from 2015-2021. Can you tell us how this came about? And for those who aren't familiar, tell us a bit about Kōnō and the dynamic and relationship with Waka Tū. I was a CEO and jumped out in September of last year, but my road to that point of being CEO of Cornwall took a little longer than others might. It was sort of the world's longest interview. So I was one of the associate directors at Wakatu back in 2012. And then I became an independent director of Cornell. After that, my last role within Cornell was as CEO. So I got to try a number of roles within the organization and then finally found one that fit best and that, that was as CEO. But I love every part of that organization. We whakapapa to Ngāti Rāro and Ngāti Kōta, who are two of the hapu and iwi owners of Wakatu. So background, Wakatu was formed in 1977 and at the time the descendants of the 254 original Māori landowners in Tutui who decided to pull their resources and create Wakatu. From there we had a really incredible board who just applied themselves and every part of themselves to regaining control of the whenua that should have been under ownership of the whānau and the descendants. They went through time, built it from $11 million in assets through to what's about three $350 million now, and on the way created Kono, which is the food and beverage arm of Wakatu. So we have about 4,000 owner whanau, and Kono really brought together activities we had been in for years and years. So Tohu Wines had been around for many, many years. I'm sure all of your listeners are drinking Tohu Wines. We have the seafood, the Kaimawana part of the business. We have horticulture with apples, pears, kiwi fruit and hops. And we have Annie's Fruit Bars. And most recently, as you said, they bought Yellow Brick Road back in 2015. It's a beautiful business that brands and tells story of Māori and of the whanau all around the world. Fantastic. That's a great segue to the next question, which is a lot of people, when they think about Māori as investors, they think about iwi only. But there are other entities that are also quite large investors and owners in New Zealand. Jamie, can you give us a bit of a 101 on where that money or that putia is coming from for these entities? There's two categories. There's the iwi economic authorities Iwi entities, by and large, have been set up as a consequence of the Māori fishery settlement, which was the first tranche of asset transfers received by Iwi. The older entities, which I would characterise as Māori economic entities, are those entities that were formed as Māori land trusts and incorporations. And so, by and large, governance structures that hold land and assets on behalf of particular classes of beneficiaries. And so, some of the higher profile entities I've had the privilege of being involved with, Parinenehike Waitotara, Wakatu, who Rachel has described, and many other land trusts throughout the country. And so you've got those two categories. And then, of course, beyond those two, you have individual Māori or groups of Māori who have established enterprises that have a similar focus and are seeking similar outcomes to iwi and Māori economic authorities. So it's really important to understand that there's a spectrum of Māori-owned, Māori-controlled entities. And the wonderful thing as we sort of enter this period of our development is that we have collective entities. So a number of iwi and Māori economic authorities coming together jointly to co-invest in particular asset classes, which is that natural evolution that we're starting to see across Māoridom as a whole. I think you've once said Māori are moving from being much more passive asset owners to being more active managers of land and assets. What do you mean by this? 
you've got to understand the Māori journey and path in the context of that colonisation experience here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But fundamentally, I've described the Māori economy as a developing economy within a developed economy. Like you see across the globe, when you're a developing economy, of course, there's huge potential and growth that can be realised. But as part of that journey, what we've had is we've come from a period where much of the assets that Māori owned have not been managed and controlled by Māori and so largely leased to non-Māori entities. And so what we're seeing now is this transition to more active management and control, which is very much driven by purposes and the social and cultural outcomes that Māori are pursuing. And so as part of that transition, the wonderful thing about it is we'll see greater benefits being captured by our Māori owners and Māori communities, and importantly, to build the capability and capacity of our membership bases because, you know, ultimately from a Māori standpoint, the greatest asset we have is people. Hence why we have that pakatauki tanga kōrero, ya te mea nui o te ao, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. I think that's really important because those that are wanting to work and partner with Māori have got to understand that there are particular outcomes that iwi and Māori entities are seeking in terms of people development, the importance of relationships and so on and so forth. And a great example of that is Wakatu and the corner example of active investment. Rach, you've had a lot of experience working with iwi or Māori-owned businesses. During your time at Kono, can you tell us a bit about some of those investments the company made and what you learned as being part of this? To the point about being developing economy within a developed economy, I feel sure that I've plagiarised that a number of times over the years. But what I would also say about the Māori economy is that it, that doesn't mean it's underdeveloped. And so we have a huge, broad range of entrepreneurs in the Māori economy who are really starting to shake things up for us. I think we have a very disproportionate number of entrepreneurs, actually. And I think also, to Jamie's point, we're changing the models of the way that we do things. So when Māori businesses, uh, and that includes our investment vehicles, come to life, essentially we come to life, we pick a model off the shelf that looks very Western. But as we grow in our capability and our confidence, I think we start changing out parts of that model for things that more accurately represent us as Māori. And we feel more comfortable in that. And that's starting to show itself and manifest itself in us and almost supercharges us as people and supercharges our organisations because it's a very natural lane to play in. We're traders by nature. We wouldn't be here if we weren't. And investment is almost the next frontier of that space. So some of the investments we had at Kono and Wakatu, we had always worked with Ngaitahu Seafoods in our muscle space, and they decided that they were going to move into a different space. And so we purchased their muscle business. That was an investment we made in ourselves, but through Ngaitahu. And what I would say is that Māori are as commercial as any other business. We make all of the same considerations around investments that non-Māori will do. And then we make a whole range of other decisions that go with that. It's almost tougher because it's not our own money. We aren't putting our own dollars on the table. We're putting the money of others. And so we consider that element of our investment decisions. Equally, we're there for a higher order, I would say. And I know that sounds quite puritanical, but the truth of it is that we would put people over profit any day of the week. And I know that a number of non-Māori businesses will talk about that as well. But I think given our history and given the fact that we are representative of other and we never do anything as individuals and largely only as collectors, it's fair to say that we do have a range of considerations. Commercial is just one of them. Profit is almost the last one in that sequence. You never leave that table. So with Māori investment, once you either make it or take it, it's kind of an all-in scenario. So that's a relationship 
orientation that we have as Māori. So I want to make sure that you handle those things with kid gloves. Such a good point. I just want to keep building on that around Māori approach to investment. Jamie, I might throw to you first. Is there a typical type of investment that Māori are looking for? You've got to go back to the particular objectives that Māori have. If you think about that in the context of investment beliefs, first and foremost, certainly from the iwi and the entities I've been involved in, we see investment as a path to enhancing identity and pride through good performance and then having visible commercial success, but also taking into account what Rachel was saying, those other factors that contribute to provide benefits for whānau. At the heart of it, the investments become a reflection of the iwi and the iwi identity and pride. Going back to what we spoke about previously, much of the, what I call the traditional or historic sort of investment space for iwi was very much centred around the three Fs, so fishing, farming and forestry as a consequence of the fact that at that time, much of the asset base that we held was Māori land, most of that being leased. And so we've had this sort of natural progression towards wanting to participate across value chains. And I've always sort of characterised the Māori value chain as it starts with land and then whatever you're doing on that land and recognising when you're an intergenerational investor that that land use may change at a point in time. But fundamentally, it's really about how we can capture greater economic rents to be able to deliver benefits back to our iwi community to do those things that are important to us. And as you know, Dylan, the places where you capture economic rents is basically at the asset ownership sort of level, but also getting that exposure to market. What we've seen is those traditional fishing, farming, forestry businesses, now with greater exposure to passive funds management, collective private equity, a desire also to sort of move into the venture capital space. What I've seen over the last 20 years in terms of my involvement at a governance and at an iwi level is iwi and Māori investors are sophisticated. I would say more sophisticated than most would understand because when you're holding assets on behalf of your collective, the responsibilities and the obligations you have are such where you carefully work through these processes, you really understand what we're shooting for and then making sure that we manage and mitigate risk appropriately. Certainly a shift is occurring. The key thing is recognising that iwi and Māori have natural advantages. When you think about natural resources, land, fishing, farming, when you think about the regulatory power that Māori have within Aotearoa New Zealand, the fact that we now have capital, the opportunity to partner, the new frontier is, you would have heard the recent announcement around offshore wind, for example, and new energy. That's the space that Viwi and Māori are heading in the future. If I could just add to that, I heard a great story the other day about one of the iwi entities who made the Audit and Risk Committee a collective of the aunties. And they're the toughest crowd in the party. So if you can't get it over them, then you're not going to get anywhere. Brilliant. Keeping on that, Rachel, what about from your perspective? Both of you touched on how sophisticated actually Māori are when they go about investing and that the core basics around the investment proposition is done really well. And then there's another layer. What are those values that drive Māori investment decisions? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think what I've come to learn over the last little while with all working with different Māori businesses, different entities is that, and this probably shouldn't have been a surprise, but your values are really a product of your upbringing. And iwi stories are all incredibly different. Another quote I might have plagiarised from our friend is that there are as many differences amongst Māoris as there are commonalities, right? You can't pick up values and move them from one group to another and hope that they stick. It's like jumping into a foreign host. 
But if you think about how iwi and hapu and whānau have evolved, that will shape the values of this moment. And so rather than think about what are those values as a collective, I can talk about Wakatu and Kono and the values that we have there. And there are five po that support our intergenerational plan to Paitafati. And they are putia. I liken it to an investment for the purposes of this conversation, but putia. So will it make money? Can it be financially sustainable? Whānau. So will this work for our team, but also our owners? So it has to work for all of the people with whom we interact. Papa Whenua, we have obviously an interest in land, to Jamie's point, about Whenua. So will it ensure that connectedness and that protection? Taiao. Are we going to do this in a symbiotic relationship-oriented way that we might with our environment? And finally, ngākohiko, you know, are we built for the journey? Is this an investment? Is this an activity that we can undertake in an innovative, new, excited, built-for-the-future kind of way? So unless you have all of those five categories being knocked out of the park, then any of your ideas, any of the ways that you move will come up a little short. So they have to work synchronistically in order for you to work as an organisation. And I would say they also make the really hard decisions easy. Once you have your very being clear why you're doing what you do and on behalf of whom, well, the day-to-day decisions become straightforward. You just touched on tyre, for lack of a better word, sustainability. There's a lot of discussion around well, Māori were doing quadruple bottom line 150 years ago, so this is nothing new for Māori. Is that true? How do Māori incorporate quadruple bottom line thinking into their approach? I once was asked to speak at a conference, and it was for Young Enterprise Trust, to, to kids about the quadruple bottom line. And I said to them, totally but could you just tell me what that is first? How do you define it? Because I happen to think you can be three, four, 10, 15 elements to your bottom line and they can be of equal importance. So, yep, sure, quadruple bottom line, cultural, economic, environmental, social, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, quite honestly. And as you say, we've been doing it within Māori business for eons. When I think about the bottom line for Māori, it's much more circular than that. It's about... Are we protected emotionally? Are we protected socially? Are we protected financially, culturally? There is a range of ways to consider success and looping them into four and directly to a bottom line is not really the way that we would think about our success. Jamie, we just talked about your upbringing, how that's helped shape you. Tell Māori is about taking an intergenerational long-term approach. How does this come out practically in the way Māori approach investment? I think it starts with what Rachel described, recognising that each of our iwi entities will have slight differences, and that's a wonderful thing, and that each will define what success means for them in accordance with their own measures and performance. When we think about our time horizon, we're patient, so we've got patient capital. We are actually open to understanding what opportunities are and how we assess them both against our values but also against some fundamental elements, which are for an iwi organisation, free cash flow is critical. So ensuring that we are generating over time sufficient income to be able to meet the distribution requirements of our people. So both operational costs and what we can invest in our people. What we do across much of our diversified portfolios is we're always looking to take advantage of what our natural advantages are and then model that out over the long term and having a degree of certainty, but having the ability to be opportunistic within investments portfolios that we're developing. And again, risk, return, fundamental, because ultimately when you're holding and managing assets on behalf of a collective, 
and you've got aunties that are turning up to every annual general meeting, we need to be pretty clear around what's driving the decision-making around our investment over the long term. And so what that really means for us is that relationships and partnerships are critical because we believe that we can't do it all alone. And so those that have similar value sets and are aligned in terms of the objectives that we seek to achieve are fundamental. One of the key advantages we have as having a longer-term investment horizon, being a perpetual investor and intergenerational, is that we can actually tolerate illiquidity and volatility over the long term. And that's a real advantage, right? Because we're not here for the short term. I guess that really sets us apart from everyone else, quite apart from the values and the worldview and perspective that we will bring. Mm. One of the comments I've had made by some of our partners is what they like about us is that they can ring the office in five minutes, five years or 50 years, and somebody will always answer the phone. That's a real benefit, as Jamie said. So Tipene had a wonderful quote. He said, broadly speaking, Māori have two things in our favour. So memory, we don't forget, but we've got to remember to remember, you know, those historical elements. The other is immortality. I know that my children, my grandchildren will carry the legacy, will carry our identity and that pride moving forward into the future. I love that. I'm going to switch tack now for those people listening that have a business that are interested in accessing Māori or iwi funding, because we get a lot of questions about this. It's not quite as simple as just rocking along. Relationships, <laughs> trust, whanaungatanga, central and te ao Māori, if I was a non-Māori company wanting to access Māori funding, how would I go about doing that? First and foremost, taking the time to get to know the iwi because having trust and confidence in partners that values alignment in terms of what we're seeking to achieve is fundamental. That's a 101 for business. The second element is through that process, understanding what iwi imperatives and objectives are for the particular investment that you might want to partner with iwi in. As I said before, iwi have a huge amount of advantages because we've got land, we've got regulatory clout, we've got capability. Fundamentally, you've got to understand how an endowment and intergenerational investor acts and behaves. And then those fundamentals, depending on what the investment is, how does it align? You could go through a set of iwi investment beliefs. I'll rattle off a few that we sort of look at. To what extent might the proposition enhance your identity, pride, and visibility of the iwi? To what extent are there opportunities to be able to tell the iwi perspective? What's the risk-adjusted return profile for this particular proposition? What's the growth trajectory for the business? What's the opportunity for other iwi to co-invest over the long term? There is the desire among iwi to focus on those growth opportunities that contribute to local and regional economies, because if we have a vibrant local regional economy, then of course we're going to have a vibrant local regional community which means that iwi are also going to benefit from that. So that's some of the things that people should think about. Mm. I would say on showing up in the regions, it's that idea that your community legitimises your success. I would add to that that companies who just understand the courtship and do their due diligence. And I've had a CEO of a really large company come to me and he was looking to partner with iwi and he just could not understand why they couldn't get it over the line. And I think the phrase was, you know, I've thrown everything at it at the kitchen sink. And I said, well, I don't think they want your kitchen sink. <laughs> Have you actually taken the time to really listen to what they want? Because I can guarantee you it's not money. It's understanding your partners and being sufficiently connected, being patient, but doing it at pace. We are a patient people, but I do see an urgency and a pace in our desire to grow and develop and to partner. 
but there's no place for saviour mentality here. You've got to recognise who's holding king cards and how do you play into that relationship and being ready to pop ego aside because when you jump into te Māori, when you're not, you better be ready to listen. Hey, now, actually, this is a great time to quickly mention an awesome resource for Kiwi businesses who are about to start their own funding journey. InvestEd is a free online tool from the NZT investment team, and it offers really practical advice, tips, and information about preparing to raise capital. So if you want to make sure you're totally ready to talk to investors, check out www.invested.co.nz. Rachel, your sustainable seafood company, Yellow Brick Road, was bought by Cornwall in 2015. So a great example of marrying a commercially successful business model, sustainable one. Talking about that courtship, how did that come about? And were there any reasons that the marriage just made sense? Yeah, I like to joke that it was a bit of a two for one. They either got me and Yellowbrick Road came with it or they really wanted Yellowbrick Road and I just came with it. <laughs> but either way, Yellowbrick Road was a startup for its entire being and that was nine years. So I founded the company in 2006 and we got great attention for the work that we were doing in and around what we thought was responsible and sustainable fisheries, telling the story of our, our amazing fishermen who caught fish where and why. And as you will know, having been around startups at a certain point, it needs an engine. You cannot have your staff following you on Twitter for the rest of your, you know, your life. That's just not how businesses grow. I never built Yellowbrick Road for sale, but ultimately when you need scale and you need rigor and you need a more robust structure to fold into, it was a very natural home. Yes, it happened at the same time they bought Yellowbrick Road and I jumped in as chief executive. But even if I hadn't gone into that role, it would have been the perfect home for the business because it started from a values alignment space. And that's really where I've seen the most successful acquisitions or partnerships or investments made is when you've done the work to understand that you have a values alignment. Without it, it becomes very challenging and you end up with a rub that is probably ultimately hard to overcome. That's a fantastic segue onto what does it mean to take on Māori as an investor? And was there a shift for you as you took on the CEO role and you had Walker 2 as your owner and investor? Did anything change? It fundamentally changed on so many levels. And I think that once the company came into Pono, I obviously had a board. So that was great. A lot more structure, a lot more accountability and responsibility. And the responsibility is the one that really stuck with me. As we've been discussing, we're making these investments on behalf of other and on behalf of Fano, and that is both a privilege and an immense responsibility. So that never escapes me that you are doing this for not yourself. You're certainly the bottom of the food chain in that consideration, but you're doing it on behalf of your grandchildren's grandchildren and beyond. So every decision you make now has to allow for their prosperous future. And so fundamentally life changed for the better. I didn't have to answer 4 p.m. Friday where are my Gurnard phone calls from chefs, but I did have to answer 11 a.m. Sunday calls from one of the whanos saying, why can't I get access to ACE? It's a beautiful challenge and it's a beautiful responsibility to carry, but you certainly couldn't ignore the magnitude of it. What about you, Jamie? What does it mean to take on Māori investment? Are there different expectations on a business when they take on a Māori investor? There's probably more expectations, Dylan, because there's potentially a perception that iwi or Māori are a soft touch that we're not as sophisticated. But I think 
certainly from my experience, when you have an intergenerational outlook, there are really clear accountabilities and there are clear expectations around governance, clarity of strategy, the investment decision-making process and how that works. The second piece around the environmental and social governance performance element, it's something that we've always known as part of who we are and what we do. It's funny because the other day someone was asking me, what's the Māori word for sustainability? And I said, there isn't one. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, because it's a way of being. I think people have just got to be clear that our expectations are high. When we invest with a partner or directly in a business, we are part of that business. It is a reflection of us, our values and what we stand for. I don't tolerate underperformance, Dylan. And I think we shouldn't tolerate underperformance and we should be looking to be as successful as possible because that's what our whānau deserve. That's what our people deserve. If you're a business that wants to improve, come and talk to us and get to know us and understand us because those elements that I've just described and the fact that we balance off current generations and future generations, you know, those are all great things for businesses that believe they have a longer term place here in New Zealand or wherever they might be in the globe. And we're very attuned to partnership. Part of our survival to this point is about partnership and Māori are amazing partners. I'm going to ask for two pieces of advice to finish with. Can you tell us where you think the opportunities lie for Māori business and investment in the next few years? I've got two places. One is more a behavioural activity. If I go to Māori and our ability to collectivise and really show strength, that is an opportunity that we are working our way towards. And there's lots of reasons why it takes time to do that. If you looked at our collective weight, both existing and potential in, for instance, seafood or meat or forestry, any of those really core industries to Aotearoa, which are all fundamentally linked to property rights and land and water, if we really applied ourselves to coming together in a smart way, that would be phenomenal and relatively unstoppable. Because we are invested in those industries, there is opportunity in tech for our traditional industries. We're never not going to be in land and water. That's just not a part of our future. That's part of our whakapapa and we will always be there. But let's be really smart at it. So let's invest in the technology in that space to make us world beaters. Love it. And add honey to that collective weight as well. That's another area. What about you, Jamie? Very much around how we leverage our existing natural advantages. So agree around the primary sector and where the greatest opportunity lies is increase collective investment and scale across those traditional asset classes in order to participate throughout the value chain. And so the desire here is for Māori to reinvent value chains and to be more market-facing. And then the second piece is when I look across portfolios of iwi, we've got to reweight our portfolios to make sure that we have sufficient allocation to the new emerging economy. A lot of that stuff, whether it's tech or whether it's VC, ideally would be adding value to those the traditional asset classes that we have to better generate returns from those value chains. Okay, last piece of advice. I'm loving this. Have you got any advice for businesses out there looking to access Māori or iwi funding? Take the time to sit down and understand who we are, what our values are. We exist for particular purposes. Work through that process with iwi. You'll get to know and understand what we require, and then I think you've got a better opportunity to be able to work with iwi or to have the privilege of managing iwi capital in the future. That would be my number one advice. And then I think look beyond just the commercial and economic returns. We're looking for returns plus 
when you're thinking about working with you, we think about what that plus is. Yeah. Rach? Not dissimilar, to be honest. It's getting to know the environment, getting to know the players and the ecosystem of Māori involvement because we are hyper-connected. That's an advantage, depending on which way you play it. But that's certainly an advantage for Māori is our connectedness. Just take time to ask questions and get to know the environment that you wish to partner with because that then ultimately will be a strength for companies as they seek investment from Māori entities. Awesome. I just want to say ka nui to mihi, Rachel and Jamie. This has been such a fascinating insight into the growing world of Māori investment in Aotearoa. You've allowed us to step in and understand what Māori or iwi investment's all about, what it means to take on Māori as an investor, and the importance of building relationships based on mutual respect and shared values when looking to partner with Māori. Oh, kia ora Dylan, it's been a great chat. Kia ora Jamie. Kia ora Dylan, thanks for your time. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.